I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. month is it? Oh, it's Pride um, Month. What month is it? Um, it's Pride Month. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's Pride um, Month. Um, <laughs> yay, happy Pride! Yeah. Woo! All right, yeah. Welcome to Pride at Bitches on Comics. Pride, woo! Welcome. We talk to people. <laughs> we talk to people here. <laughs> woo! Woo! We crushes a beer can. <laughs> High fives, bald eagle. Gets drunk because you're drinking vodka out of a water bottle <laughs> at nine o'clock in the morning and it's flavored <laughs> vodka, which is always real dicey. You're just drinking like watermelon vodka or something. Oh, it's nine rough. o'clock in the morning. So hot. Hottest day of the year. Ridiculously hot. Everybody is wearing no clothes, but for some reason you're wearing too much clothes. <laughs> And guess what? By the time 11 o'clock comes around, you're done. Happy Pride. That might not be everybody's experience, but it's going to be mine. (laughs) It's how I celebrate. Respect how I celebrate. (laughs) 
Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor, and I'm here with one of your other hosts, the illustrious, the incredible, the inimitable, Sarah Century. It's me. Hi, everybody. It's a me. me. Oh, no, we are doing it. We said we were going to do this off off the mic a minute ago when we weren't recording, and now it's happening. So it's a me, Wario. Wow. And we have, <laughs> and you might have heard our our guest, <laughs> other Wario, <laughs> otherwise known as Nadia Shamas. Hello, welcome, welcome, welcome. Wow. We're so pumped that you're here. Oh my god, Thank you. I'm we very did it. I'm here. Yay. Uh, yes, uh, I really love bitches on comics so i'm just like okay i did it i made it you've made it to the illustrious our guest list which i would refer to as illustrious uh certainly every single person is a luminary and it's true yeah we've had so many amazing people on earlier today i was actually listening to your interview with one of the people who we have had on the show but not for a long time who is the host of graphic policy radio yeah, I think that was like closer to the beginning of the pandemic, right? It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. that was, we were still kind of talking about like early pandemic coping mechanisms and that oh, I just yeah. talked about re-watching Chernobyl over and over again. Oh, Oh, that's yeah. a coping mechanism. I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like. I think my coping mechanisms generally tend to be staring directly into the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. Interview over. Home. <laughs> That's too funny. So, Nadia, besides <laughs> being someone who is constantly staring <laughs> the abyss in the face, yeah. what, what else is, is your deal, would you say? Uh, so, my deal is, is that I'm a Palestinian-American writer who is originally from Brooklyn. And right now, I'm kind of living between Brooklyn and Toronto, which is very nice, very fun. I'm a comic writer who's kind of best known for Squire, what we're talking about, being the co-creator of Squire, but I've also known for being the writer of Ms. Marvel Stretch Thin um, and also being the editor and curator and creator of Corpus, a comic anthology of bodily ailments, which was uh, inspired by me as a type 1 diabetic back in 2017 being like, wow, healthcare in America is really bad. And then nothing worse happened ever again. <laughs> it stayed just fine. <laughs> and then everything was fine forever. But um, Sarcasm. As you know, we all have healthcare now, so. <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, not to, yeah. So I guess not to be too dark. Yes, I'm a, I'm a comics writer. I'm very proudly Palestinian. I, uh, love uh, genre fiction. I love science fiction. I love fantasy. I love horror, especially. And, uh, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of stuff here and there, you know, I, I've been doing like some, you know, uh, Marvel and DC stuff, which has been really fun. But I think my heart definitely still lies with my graphic novels, my creator owned graphic novels, which are always very close to me. And I've got Two of them coming out this year. Right today, we're talking about Squire. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, I also wrote an adult graphic novel that is a 
eldritch horror graphic novel called Where Black Stars Rise. It was co-created with the just absolutely ingenious Marie Anger, and it's coming out in October. And it is a retelling of The King in Yellow from a queer Arab perspective. Okay, well, you have to come back. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) I didn't know about this. I just started reading The King in Yellow. I've never read it before. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a fun one, I think. I like The King in Yellow because it has really interesting things, I think, to say about, like, creativity as a destructive force internally Mm. within yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that when I approached the retelling of The King in Yellow, what I wanted to change mostly was the point of view, because obviously a lot of traditional eldritch fiction uh, is incredibly racist, especially to Arabs. Um, So I really um, was inspired by the work of people like Victor Laval with the Ballad of Black Tom and Cassandra Call with Hammers on Bone, who I was just inspired by seeing these black and brown people of color doing eldritch horror within the mythos better than any of those old fucks could have ever done by themselves. And I was like, I want to do that. Hell yes. Yeah. Yes. Hell yes. What yeah. was the, we reviewed one of Laval's comics that was reimagining Frankenstein. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Destroyer. So yes. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Oh my I had God. I also think about that read, comic all the time. Yeah. I had also read Ballad of Black Tom and what a great and super short book that is. Whenever yeah. people tell a yeah. story that's that good that fast, I'm always kind of yeah, in awe no. because what? <laughs> it was like one of the probably like game-changing, life-changing things that I've read where I read it and I just felt so like, you know, when you read a certain line and then chills go down your entire spine. I remember yeah, I was yeah. reading it on the subway and I got to a very certain line, which I don't want to spoil in case anyone wants to read, but it's kind of the like... His final answer, I suppose, to the horror at Red Hook, and it was uh, it was amazing. It's such a good book. I hadn't heard the other one that you mentioned, but I'm going to oh, check yes. it out. It's uh, Hammers on Bone by Cassandra Ka. They are a really fantastic horror writer, and um, it's like a 1920s-esque, almost detective eldritch novel where the detective is an eldritch being who gets hired by a young boy to kill his stepfather, who he is convinced is also being possessed by an eldritch being. Ooh, that's so cool. All right, I'm excited. That's awesome. Well, after I wrap up King in Yellow, I guess I know where I'm going to go. I hadn't heard about this graphic novel, and if you don't mind, we'll talk about it just for a minute. So how did that feed into this new work? So Marie and Anger and I were were already kind of talking. Marie had done a sketch uh, of The King in Yellow, and I was like, you know, man, this sketch is so good. And we started talking, and over time, we went back and forth enough. We did an Inktober thing, actually, where we did like a scene from what will later become the graphic novel, but we did just kind of one scene where we uh, put out like a page every day over the course of October, and then we decided to kind of keep going and make it into like a full-fledged graphic novel. Well, it's more of a graphic novella. It's like 120-something pages, um, and it's Mm. coming out from Tor Nightfire, which is really exciting. Yeah, Yeah. because they're like a, a, you know, they're just putting out horror bangers every which way. Mm -hmm. So I am really excited. Pre-orders are live now. I think that 
obviously because Squire is coming out or by the time this will be out has come out that that's been kind of the majority of my social media focus. But I definitely am so excited because I love horror and I think that it's really funny that my my works generally tend to be like either like bright YA (laughs) or just like terrible darkness. And I'm like, I'm like that. I always post up that picture of Sabrina with the head of the like goat head Lucifer of her just like smiling with a thumb up and then this horrific goat head. And I'm like, yeah, this is literally just the two kinds of work I make. It's either a cute teen or like just awful. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I relate to that because I feel like we're very fun and positive on the podcast and then every now and then we're like listen yeah <laughs> there's some real shit we gotta talk about yeah and we always talk about real shit but we usually do with like a, a giggle and every now yeah, and then we're like, like a kind turn of the lights cheek. down lower the music we're gonna do some real talk yeah yeah i'm super excited to read that i think that that's gonna be amazing Honestly, everything that I could ever want in a book because I am a huge horror fan and I love yeah. everything that Tor's put out that I've read. I haven't read everything that they've done, yeah, but course, they are but... one of those publishers where it's kind of like I should just send them two hundred dollars. Like, let me know. Like, send let me, me know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's they're one of those. and they're they're lovely people too. I could say that they're like they're just like super supportive, really great. Love their authors. Like I, I'm a, I'm. A, big fan of them like internally and also of their products so mm-hmm. yeah oh nice yeah to work with them that's a, always a really good feeling we were talking yesterday about northwest press with someone who was published by them and i got to discover kind of what they put out so i always love to hear about a good publisher honestly mm-hmm. because then i'm like no i feel good buying this book <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you mean i especially feel that way with game companies yeah it's just like if i know someone who's working at a game company and they're like oh they're great i'm just like thank and then afterwards you always are kind of like yeah my best friend that person that my friend knows that works at the game company that's i'll support them in anything they do yeah (laughs) i'm changing gears i don't know what the words are i'm trying to find but i didn't hear you mention that you had a story in women of marvel and i really loved your she-hulk story which i think was called wild rhino chase yes and i would just love to hear what it was like to work on that um how it felt to like play with She-Hulk? Like, isn't she that coolest? And you did her so right. It was so good. So Thank I just love to you. hear about that. I, I, so I think that that story was like my first like mainline Marvel thing because I had done the uh, Ms. Marvel stretch thin graphic novel that was a collaboration between Marvel and Scholastic, uh, specifically like, you know, published by Scholastic Graphics. But I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but I was an editorial intern at Marvel uh, when I was in college. And so that was the thing that made me take comics seriously as a career. It was that I knew that I wanted to work in publishing. I knew I wanted to be a writer, but there was a certain, I had a really uh, bad experience in a creative writing program in college. So then I was like, screw writing. I'm never going to write again. I'm going to like help other writers instead, which is very funny. That is my jam. That is my path. That is exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's really funny because, (laughs) but then, and then I was like, I was trying so hard to find my place in publishing. And then I did this Marvel editorial internship 
And I was so in love uh, with the entire process of making comics that I was like, no, 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 this is what I want to do. But then as I started doing freelance editing, it was lovely. And I met so many lovely people, but I realized that like, no, I'm, I'm still passionate about my own stories. So then I decided to give writing another shot and like, God, I am glad I did. Um, and it's funny because- Samesies, I'm so yeah. glad you did. Oh my God. Thank you. It's funny because I had a creative writing professor in college who like berated me once in front of the class because I had comics on my desk. Mm. I was like, that's not real art, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh. yeah, well, fuck you now. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Like, truly, whatever. truly fuck you. Yeah, so- now I'm like, yeah, whatever. But yes, yeah, so ever since I did that Marvel Auditorium internship, I wanted to find my way back. And so it was amazing to finally get to do that and to do that with one of my favorite Marvel characters, who is She-Hulk. I adore She-Hulk. I think she's amazing. And with that story, I really wanted to have like a fun kind of, and I wanted to set it at the Museum of Natural History because when I was a kid, that was one of my favorite museums in New York. So I really wanted to set it there. I thought that that would be a great set piece. You know, it was kind of light and comedic. I love the rhino. I think he's hilarious. So it was just, it all kind of all came together. The thing with She-Hulk that I also wanted to admire was how great her arms are. So I made sure that she that was going to catch someone. That line, and she when, would, when the that person, person like, was going to say, Whew. "This is the best day of my life." I got, <laughs> I got to be carried, nestled in the beautiful, large, muscly arms of She-Hulk, and I'm like, God, I wish that were me. I feel yes, like you're singing you Sarah's song. Like, okay, so <laughs> I'm just, oh, arms. Yeah, let's talk about that. I'm constantly <laughs> just uh, thirsting over people's arms. So same. I, I, I no, appreciate. same. That's like a big thing for me. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because arms are hot. They I don't are. know why. They just are. They just do it for me. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And She-Hulk, wow. You know? She's so, got great no, arms. This is amazing. She's yeah. got great arms. That She-Hulk. No kidding. No, I wonder <laughs> if this played a role in me becoming a huge She-Hulk fan in my childhood. <laughs> just like my root... <laughs> My fruit. Yeah, no. I mean, She-Hulk has always been so, like, confident, sexy, yes. and not in, like, a gross way either. She just seemed so comfortable in her in her body and in herself a lot of the time in a way that, like, you know, that I've never fucking felt. So I was no. like, yeah, I was very, you know, I was really, uh, I, I've always admired her character. I always thought she was great. So, yes, uh, I was very, very happy to work on She-Hulk. I've been very lucky to work on, like, a lot of characters that I really, really enjoy. Um, as it's probably, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably know this, that Talia al Ghul is one of my favorite characters in all of comics. Oh, hey. Um, and I have been getting to do, like, some short Talia work and, you know. Oh, God. It's, she deserves I, it. Like, you yes, deserve it. But she I, deserves you. it. I do think she deserves <laughs> like, it. And I don't think it's, like, I think I'm perfectly allowed to be like, I hope I get to do more Talia work because I literally never stop bothering DC about it. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. not like they're going to listen to this and be like, oh, no, she told everyone she wants to do more Talia work. Like, they know. No, and this is like the podcast for it. I feel yeah. like we've been manifesting uh, Stephanie Williams because since oh yeah. since she was first on the pod, it has just been leaps and bounds in the career. So, but almost every time I listen back, I'm like, oh, there's Steph talking about something that's about to happen to her. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. I've been I've been very lucky to be doing kind of like, especially like. 
I love that I've been getting to do a lot of backstory Talia stuff too, because I think mm. that her backstory has been like severely neglected and Come on, very right? warped. She's so, the daughter of Rish. Like that is yeah. wild. You would think that that would be such a more elaborate story. Yeah. Never mind. I wouldn't think that. I'm glad that it will be now. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I really, yeah, I think Talia and, and Ross have been done so dirty. I, I can't call him Raish because like oh. in Arabic it's Rasulul and I'm like, Is that I right? can't, and I'm like, I can't, I can't, because Rasulul just means head of the demon. And it's also like right. a little bit, I think I told my mom about Rasulul and she was like, that's a, like, she's like, isn't that like a folk figure? And I'm like, I don't know, mom, you would know. <laughs> and she was just like, and I told her it was a Batman villain. She was like, that's ridiculous. And I was like, I know, mom, comics are weird. It is, mom. Comics it are is. weird. Like comics are weird. There's like, a lot of weird villains. <laughs> yeah, there's a villain named King Shark. He's like an actual shark, mom. <laughs> that goes around being like, shark, I'm a shark, I'm a shark. <laughs> yeah, um, Thank you for that, because I think maybe that'll help some people. I never heard that before, and I'm happy to Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I know that, I know that, like, I think Raish is, like, the way that they pronounce it, but I just can't yeah. bring myself to do it. I'm just Fair like, enough. it's good, like, it's Ross. So, and, like, I think Ross and Talia, and even Damien, to a certain extent, have all been, have all been done a little dirty. Damien, the least dirty, yeah. uh, but I love that boy. Um, and yeah. uh, so, it's kind of just my hope to just kind of get my grubby little paws all over the Al Ghouls. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just got lost in, oh, wow. <laughs> that would be so <laughs> cool. <laughs> Sometimes on this podcast, it turns into the hippie podcast where you're just, oh, <laughs> that's Why awesome. is it your art is so beautiful? It's so beautiful. <laughs> There was one where I know that we were high for it, but we were also just like both so into this person's art that we just said beautiful like 90 times. Um, We might do like we have something more insightful to say. God, I wish wish I knew because I think I was thinking about like taking an edible before this. And I was like, Ah! I have to be, I have to be on my wits. (laughs) I got to be on my toes for this. Oh yeah, you would next want time. To show next up time, to one when of we, these when we come back for yeah, when I come back for uh, for where Black Stars Rise, it'll just be it'll Blazed. just yeah, we'll just be out. vibing on yeah, your exactly. terrifying horror story. <laughs> yeah, basically, be like, what about this part where? Like, oh my god, there's a story off. I want to tell you, but I'm like, should I save it for then? I guess I'll tell you now. Um, I I when I was writing it, there was there a big thing about that story is there's a lot of uh, doors. There's a lot of door imagery because uh, I put a lot of my own psychoses in that book. And uh, I had a thing about anxiety, about doors. And um, I was describing in the script the way a door was cracked open, just so. And I look up and I see that my bedroom door is cracked open the same way. And I literally (laughs) sat there and I was like... Just cold terror. And I said to myself, I was like, you you literally did this. Like, you're writing <laughs> yeah. this right now. Like, you are in the process of making this up. Why are you scaring yourself? Yeah. I yeah. love it. Because sometimes I write horror, too. And I love it when I scare myself. But it yeah. does happen. And then you're just like, oh, that's the creepiest thing I could ever think yeah, of. And yeah, then you're like, yeah. is there someone in the house? <laughs> I mean, I love that about horror, though. Because it's so, like... 
cathartic to just kind of dig up the worst things you could imagine, think of, or have experienced. And you're just kind of offering it up to someone else and being like, please enjoy. It's a story. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I hope you like this. It's filled with my trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. You were talking actually in the graphic policy interview a little bit about catharsis and what a role it plays in your work. And I think that's something I would love to hear more about. I would love to hear it uh, definitely with the horror, but I think that there's been there's a, a, a lot, lot of, of discussion, too. right? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Is is that in Squire? I I'm excited to see this next work because I want to see how it manifests in both of them. Mm-hmm. But in Squire, there's definitely a ton of catharsis. I feel like, yeah, yeah. I think that for myself, uh, the you know, I've literally been writing for as long as I can remember. Like, I think I started writing stories to myself when I figured out how to read and write. And uh, a big thing for me was that I would often rewrite what was like happening around me, the more difficult things that were happening around me, because I had, you know, something of a pretty difficult childhood. Um, I would rewrite those things into these kind of elaborate fantasies, or I would rewrite exactly what was happening as if I was writing it to someone who didn't know. And I would either give myself an escape by writing these fantasies, or I would try to explain to myself what was actually happening because I couldn't emotionally understand it. And by writing it out as if I was talking to someone else, it kind of gave me this strange out-of-body experience that allowed me to process things. So I think that uh, processing and catharsis has always been a really, really big thing in my work because it's just kind of my work is how I manage, right? So I think that Squire is really filled with that because Squire is filled emotionally with a lot of the tropes that I love. Like, it's a fun story about, like, you know, found family, kids with swords, mentors, like, you know, the underdogs, uh, the legacy kid. It's got all the things that I really enjoyed as a kid when, you know, I think both Sara and I both cite, like, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood and uh, and also... Um, Avatar The Last Airbender as like kind of the things that we loved the most as kids and wanted to pull from, okay, why did we love that? And kind of bring that into Squire. But at the same time, Squire emotionally is absolutely filled with the experience of being an Arab American growing up in Brooklyn during the Bush administration at a very formative age. I think everyone in New York probably remembers where they were on 9-11, but what I also remember is the day after 9-11, walking into my classroom, seeing the way my classmates looked at me, and realizing that nothing would ever be the same again for me. And I was quite young when that happened, so there's a lot of that in Squire. There's a lot of kind of seeing yourself through the lens of someone who is at war with the culture you're from. There's a lot of identity stuff that's, you know, how do you can see yourself when you aren't represented? You know, how do you see the empire in when all you know is propaganda? And what does it do in the long term to everyone in the empire when only certain militaristic, nationalistic stories are being told and put at the forefront? So Isa's journey is about a lot of things, but I think primarily, and my own catharsis in here, it's about realizing that there is no space for her in the Empire's vision. The promises are empty. 
she has to figure out who she is by herself and make peace with that. That was heavy. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> no, like fucking beautiful. Yeah, it's fucking beautiful. And what I was gonna say that I think feeds into that too, right? Is like empires thrive on getting the people who are oppressed to do the oppressing. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that another thing that was a huge part of my experience is that it wasn't simply experiencing kind of the day-to-day racism of being Arab in the Bush administration. It was also watching the armed forces hovering over my community, looking to pick up anyone who's willing to enlist. You know, I was even contacted when I was graduating high school Um, asking if I would do translation work and they would pay for my whole college and stuff. And obviously, you know, for someone like myself, like, you know, just working class person, like who still has a shit ton of student debt, by the way, it's like a compelling thing when you don't have something else, just watching the way. And, you know, also I went to Brooklyn College, which is a city college, and there were recruiters in the lunchroom almost every day, just kind of having that constant presence of not only you know, just kind of like the, the the stain for us, but also attempting to get us to work in empire, almost as if a way to be like, you can gain your status socially and also financially if you just join our cause, right? And Which and, is like quite literally what the characters are faced with. In absolutely. Squire, right? All yeah. of the recruits, Isa included, are, that's the offer. Yeah, that's hey, the offer. You're gross and we hate you, but we'll, you'll be less gross and we'll hate you less. And maybe you could be cool and maybe you could be an insider if basically you die on the front lines. Yeah. Or if you just, you know, as what happens to Isaac, you get to become a figurehead for other marginalized people to believe in the vision of the army. That was the point of her being named Squire. It wasn't because she was necessarily better than everyone else because she wasn't. What she was was a very, very good tool because, you know, the tools of war are not simply weapons. The tools of war are also the histories and the stories that we tell ourselves. You know, um, propaganda is massive, but it's important for the machinations of empire to keep drilling in the message no matter how long it takes, right? So, yeah, I guess I, I've got off a little bit on the tangent, but yeah, there's something everyone's trying to get in Squire. You know, Sahara is trying to gain financial mobility. Husni is trying to prove something to himself. Uh, Isa is trying to get citizenship and freedom. There's there is a carrot for all of them. Yeah, I was thinking about that because when you were telling, I was also thinking about how I lived in a small town recently and there was recruitment all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about it just being like, well, yeah, I would assume here you would want to join the military. I was thinking about that a lot whenever I was reading Squire too, because it really is kind of... um, I always think it's exploitative. I think it's pretty trashy to, like, to go looking for, uh, you know, like 17, 18 year olds and being like, hey, here's this way. But then here, I feel like everybody's motivations are laid out in that way, right? All, all of the different characters. And something that really struck me was all of the characters when they're writing letters home to their families. Mm-hmm. All of the main characters get a moment of writing yeah. home. 
I learned so much about each one of those characters in that moment. And I just thought it was one of the most brilliant things I have ever read because it communicated so much of what their motivations are, what they're looking for. And it doesn't really pull back the veil at that point. At that point, we might still believe that it's a good thing that she's off becoming a squire, right? That she's getting what she wants, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the thing where you don't really see that part of it yet, but you see exactly why every single one of them is there. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, I think that was like one of the most like off the top of my head's scenes that I looked back like I was just like okay how do I do this and then it just kind of yeah. came to me and then I wrote it and after I wrote it I was like this is the best decision I could have made right yeah I think it is because it's fairly close to the beginning but we've already seen them all interact at that point we kind of have an idea one of the things that was so interesting about that scene is it gives context for them by themselves mm -hmm. that we wouldn't have seen otherwise because they're all going through the same thing together. And I think that something like military, it's like a uniform experience, right? Yeah. But in this, that's where we saw so much of what each of them wanted. Yeah. I think it was important also that the experience that they're having in military is also is is very difficult but also I really didn't want to shy away from the fact that they were kids and that yeah. it's going to kind of feel like camp sometimes you oh, know yeah yeah uh Isa like goofed off a bunch <laughs> because she's also I another really important thing was that she's not the chosen one or anything in fact she's terrible at this um she's the last person that you would imagine to be you know the hero she ends up becoming however that's kind of the point, right? Is that like no one is ready <laughs> to kind of get yeah. out, go up against, you know, empire and speculations. And also Squire is not attempting in any way to answer the question of empire or the question of identity. The most I can hope for is that someone reads it and starts thinking about their own place in empire, their own kind of privileges, their own disadvantages and what is the story that they've been told about themselves and what is the history they've been told about where they live and where is the truth in that for them because the empire is providing its own truth and that's an easy truth to swallow often for some and not for others um and i guess I don't know who's going to be reading Squire, but I hope whoever reads it gets to get to really think about where they are, what's their personal culpability, and what do they want to do about it? You know, that's a big part of the ending is that I'm not looking to answer anything. The Empire is not going to be brought down by a teenage girl, nor should it be. There is no one person's responsibility, especially if the real people that I'm, I've written this book for is, you know, the young Arab kids in my heart. I don't want them to feel that it's their responsibility to inspire everyone and bring down the empire. No, because it's an ongoing process that requires a lot of people. It's not about looking up. It's about looking around you and seeing who's in arms with you. That's beautiful. You know, Sarah, what it reminds me of is a conversation, a couple conversations we've had with Danny Lore about, mm. about their work. And Danny's about, great. Well, Danny's the coolest, obviously. Yeah. And Danny talked a lot about how they didn't want to tell chosen one stories, but yeah. about, you know, stories of people power. Yeah. And actually how we change things is in community and it is together. And that's what I saw in Squire, and it really resonated with me. It's not about 
Isa stepping up and changing the world. Though, like, she's a piece of changing the world. It takes everybody. Yeah. Because... I won't say any more about that. Um, he's like, yeah, wait a minute. I'll go into depth. Yeah, no, basically, her big plan, I think it's safe to say, her big plan fails pretty tremendously. Yeah, which it should. Which and it like, should, because she's 14. And Durek knows right away. He's yeah. like, uh. <laughs> yeah. He's like, but if I work on this other side, okay, okay, maybe there is something here. And that's, I just love that moment. That's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. What I keep coming back to in my mind is that Squire is the only kind of war story I like, which is, ironically, a Trojan horse, right? We present you a war story, but it's actually anti-war. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. so beautiful. And, you know, I think about that a lot with Yoon Ha Lee's work. I mean, there's myriad works that that we could think about that with. And, and that stood out to me so much with Squire that it, that it was, you know— we're spending a lot of time in military. There's training. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of war talk. There's a lot of sacrifice talk. There's a lot of all those things. But it's like you're showing us that not to indoctrinate us, which is what a lot of war stories are about, right? Yes, yeah. That's right. Propaganda. But actually to show us the way people are indoctrinated. To show yeah. us what it is like to actually, like what war really is, Right. I think of that moment when she chases down that, yeah, for lack of a better term, like rebel who's yeah. like attacking yeah. them, and she like pulls the knife to his throat, and she's like, "I should kill you," and he just quakes. Yeah, and it feels like in that moment the facade crumbles for her. Yeah, and and that to me is like what defines stories like yours that are so beautifully anti-war through war. Thank you. I I really appreciate that. I think that you know, I think Sarah and I when we first started, you know, working on Squire, we really did want it to be kind of a combination of things. We wanted it to be a love letter to our favorite tropes and fantasy and in in these kinds of stories. We wanted it to be a love letter to our cultures because often in fantasy, if we're, you know, if we're there, we're the orcs, right? And um, I think that We also wanted it to be something that hopefully anyone with a foot in two identities, anyone from kind of a a marginalized background whose very identity sits at an intersection that is against the very concept of empire would be no matter where you are in the world or what those identities might be, that you would be able to kind of see something in Squire. So, you know, a, a sense of universality, I guess, there. So, but at the same time, obviously, as a Palestinian, I cannot write anything about about kind of war or identity or history without thinking or being influenced by the fact that I am watching erasure of Palestinian people and the destruction and disruption of history happening in real time. Um, I dedicated Squire to Edward Said because that was one of the figures that really kind of helped me find my footing and my voice. And so uh, I, I wrote an essay in the back of Squire, which I know that we we want to talk about, that um, yeah. was very much inspired by an Edward Said co- quote about how history is a thing that is made by men and women. And it's, you know, never, ever impartial. There's always someone missing, someone being exploited someone telling the story. And uh, so, yeah, I think that uh, Squire is an anti-war story because there is no way that, uh, you know, 
you can sit at the intersection of identities that I'm at and not feel that way. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> I, yeah, you I, keep like all I'm gonna say is that's out. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the art, but we're just going, man. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's like that's a, a real it's a big <laughs> <laughs> It actually, we it's very heartfelt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we might we might sound like stoners and we might be stoners, but it's heartfelt. It's okay. And I mean, genuine. I'm gonna be honest. Who after this pandemic is not. Show yourself who have just oh my god, okay. not a story. Who has who has not dabbled? No, because I, um, I that is the biggest change of me before the pandemic and me after the pandemic. I've become a huge story. Right? Like what else is there to do? Like, I'm for um, real a- though. <laughs> Adrian Marie Brown, who we, we got to have on the podcast earlier, uh late in 2021, which was so cool. She posted a <laughs> meme. I was gonna take a break to reset my tolerance for THC, and then I looked around the world and thought no <laughs> no i saw that's a tweet like, that's a me. Me, like a me tweet that was like for those of you who you know like are laying off weed and bettering yourselves i'm happy for you but it's me and we till the end of days <laughs> and i'm just like honestly <laughs> maybe yeah maybe oh. right you know, oh, that might be my my one and only. Yeah. I'm, I'm married. <laughs> like, that's such a crazy thing to say. Uh, my listen, yeah, I, I think JB would say it too. I was going to say, your spouse understands. <laughs> We're in yeah. a polyamorous relationship with the moon and weed, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, among others sometimes. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice.
Decoded. I heard a rumor that something called Decoded was just around the corner. Decoded. Decoded. (laughs) (laughs) We are coming back for the third year in a row with our extremely cool, very dear and near to my heart, speculative anthology of all LGBTQ stories by queer and trans authors. Decoded. It is called Decoded Pride. It's at decodedpride.com. And you can pick up a subscription today for only $14.99. Or if you go to any of our social media sites on Instagram or Twitter at Bitches on Comics, or if you follow us on Patreon or support us over there on Patreon, we have discount codes already all plugged in for you. And you can get it for even cheaper. So go check those out. But right now you can get it for $14.99 at decodedpride.com. And Sarah, what is Decoded? What are people going to get? They get 30 stories that can be any kind of stories, really, other than literary fiction. (laughs) We mostly just do queer speculative fiction. You have stories of comic books. You have stories of horror stories. You have fantasy stories, science (laughs) fiction, all of the things. You know what speculative fiction is. I don't have to tell you. Stuff that's just... Even just too hard to define. Simply undefinable. Genre bending. Trippy. Yes. Yeah, I'm really excited this year. The the stories, I mean, they're they're great every year. And if you haven't bought a subscription to issue one or issue two, you can do so right now (laughs) over at, guess what, (laughs) decodedpride.com. Please go go get a subscription. I think it's just really neat. It's awesome to read queer and trans people's stories that are the ones they want to tell because they know they can take risks with us. And I, you know, I've really seen that pay off and I'm delighted. I can't wait for people to start seeing these. What's especially cool is that every story that is not a comic has a piece of art that accompanies it. In almost every instance, that art is made by our very own Sarah Century. And in one instance, made by the artist who wrote the story as well, which is very cool. But Sarah, you know, what, what do you enjoy about making the art for Dakota? I think that it's really fun because it makes me examine the stories and think about them in a different way. It makes me get creative Mm. because normally when you read a story, you're just thinking about what you thought about it overall. I'll engage with stories like that usually. Whenever you're doing the art, it means you really have to look back over it and back over it and engage with it in a way that you haven't before, which it's really fun whenever you do it for Decoded as I do. (laughs) Oh, that sounds amazing. I love that. It's pretty neat. Well, we hope you'll come support us and all of the amazing creators we're getting to publish this year. We are absolutely ecstatic. Again, join us at decodedpride.com. Dot com. You know, while we're talking about the essay at the back, so listeners, when you, when you read Squire, make sure you check out the back matter, uh, To be honest, you should always be checking out the back matter on any trade paperbacks and graphic novels. Always cool stuff in there. But in Squire, there's this incredible uh, essay called Squire and History. And oh my gosh, it's on this beautiful designed page. That's all Sarah. That's all Sarah. Sarah Oh, Sarah, you rule. Yeah, no, Sarah is a fucking beast. (laughs) Every time, Sarah just whips up these incredible graphics just like casually. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah sorry rules yeah um and we talked a little bit about history and the imagining of self and empire a little bit we've talked a lot about those things i'm going to read a little excerpt from this if that's Uh, yeah of course 
This is uh, <laughs> your words, Nadia. I've grown up a lover of fantasy. Fantasy didn't always love me back. Honestly, most of the media I adored didn't. If Arabs were even hinted at in Western fantasy, we were the orcs, the barbarians, the savages with strange customs who needed to be tamed and civilized by an attractive white person, usually. But as a young person, you take what you get. Ultimately, the danger is that you start to believe these narratives about yourself. Perhaps the elves are the good to strive for. Perhaps the ones who look and sound like you are to be rejected. It dovetails for me with, I know, the, like, some of the original thoughts on Aiza were more that she was going to be, like, a young orkling who was hanging out with a knight. And then I, I also read a little bit, and, I'm, you know, I want to sort of, like, let, tell me what's in between the lines of your choices and Sarah's choices to sort of de-fantasy yeah. the work. So, and I would love to hear all about that and, and, and how your evolving relationship with fantasy has grown either— during, because of, or after Squire. Yeah, I think so. Basically, it's interesting because Sarah reached out to me and, and was like, hey, I'm ready to do a graphic novel, but I, I want to kind of talk about our influences and things that we love and see if we have kind of similar touchstones, which, you know, thankfully it turns out we did. And Sarah had this project that she had done, you know, for for school, which was like, an original imagining of Squire. And she was like, hey, I already have this, but I don't necessarily need to, you know, be married to it. So I looked at it and I was, you know, inspired by mostly the world, more so than just the characters, even though Daruk is the least changed from those designs. Um, I think we ended up kind of scrapping almost everything except for some of the kind of world building background illustrations that she had done. And instead of, you know, I, I wanted to build on them since they were already there and I love fantasy. We spent hours and hours and hours just doing kind of world building and talking on the phone because it was really important that these characters felt real and they felt real in a way that they were the products of the places, the conditions, the class and the world geographically that they came from so that everything felt very real and made sense as to why. So, you know, like for a character like Husni, we were like, okay, if he's from a seafaring tribe, it would make sense perhaps that, you know, if they have a lot of ships, they'd be entering trade and they would have a higher class and that result of that class would allow for better integration. So there was a lot, like a lot of conversations like that. And we definitely had a lot of conversations about magic systems. The more we talked about magic systems, the more we realized that you know, one, having a half-assed magic system is the worst thing in the world. I, like, the world building, we took it so seriously that we were like, no, 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 no. If we have a magic system, it must make sense. And we were like, this is, this is like too, it doesn't add anything to the story for there to be magic at all. And then as, you know, it went on, I'm very glad that we moved away from the idea of magic and kind of went for a more historical fantasy settings because it was a story about history. And at the same time, it's always the magical Arab. And we wanted it to be taken seriously. You know, we, we didn't want it to be kind of far off and mystical. We wanted to treat it the way that people treat Game of Thrones, 
you know, like with that kind of uh, layered complexity, you know, when you read the books, it's all sigils. And and by the way, in that essay, can you tell that I have problems with Daenerys and the Dothraki? I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that as someone who read all yeah. the books twice, by the way, sure. uh, in college. I was a big fan of Game of Thrones, but Daenerys was always just the biggest fucking thorn in my side. Her and the Dothraki, my God. But yeah, so to stop talking about how much I hate Daenerys. Um, I mean, yeah. or you can keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're on here board. For that. Yeah, no, it's like fine. she's just God. I mean, Daenerys is England, right? She just like walks in. Uh, she's yeah, like, she's right. literally England. <laughs> she rips. this is mine. This is mine. This is mine. That's mine. Yeah, this basically, mine. she's like, I'm gonna, <laughs> I discovered I'm it. Gonna destabilize this entire fucking Gulf. Which, by the way, yeah. the books and the show are both gonna treat as like mystery immoral like monstrous worlds yeah. you know like absolute nightmare shit but um yeah i felt that i wanted the same kind of of seriousness of world building and the same kind of grace given to something like game of thrones or wheel of time to be given to a story about arabs a story with no white people in it and so that was that was kind of the seriousness which we took the world building and the historical world building and we just felt like and I personally just felt like the magic arab is done I don't need it in this story like I love magical stories um I'm like I'm sure someday I would love to get into kind of folklore and mysticism of the arab world but for this one it just didn't need it you know so I did a ton of research on the Ottoman Empire and the Byzantine empires and I think that Another reason why Squire is a historical fantasy is that we wanted to tell a story, tell kind of a fantasy story that reflected us. But we also knew that, unfortunately, marginalized creators who are making fantasy worlds that reflect their own worlds culturally are not given the same grace. People will immediately assume that you're talking about certain countries or you're talking about certain histories Mm. or that you're like doing a one-to-one. We're not kind of given... Like Game of Thrones, no one's sitting there being like, George R. R. Martin really talked shit about England. You know what I mean? Like, even though the so the whole deal was based on the the War of the Five Kings or, you know, the right. War of the Roses or whatever, like no one's no one's mad at him for using history, but if we do it, we have to be so pitch perfect. We have to put, you know, the wealth of every single experience in it. We are given no margin for error. So Historical fantasy, in the case of Squire, kind of gave us, we can build a world from the ground up that reflects us, that doesn't have to deal with the one-to-one that people expect Mm. of uh, marginalized fantasy. Um, So it, it gave us a freedom. What stands out to me is I wouldn't have known that anything was sort of removed. Do you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like it it reads, it's so strong and you can see all the historical references. You know, you see the arabesque arches and yeah. you see, you know, and it's, it's just like, it's so, in the oh my God, the clothes, the yeah, character no, design. Sara, oh. In fact, actually, when we were coming up with Squire, Sara that same summer went to Turkey and Jordan and took like, live oh reference photos there. That's awesome. So it like I definitely think you could feel that in in the book. I think you could definitely feel like the wealth of just Sara being there and kind of doing historical research while there and taking inspiration here and there. And I think even in the book you can just see her confidence grow. 
there's a certain point where she just starts going absolutely wild with the panels and like the and I'm like, yes, mm-hmm. do it. <laughs> That's so exciting. It has a build to it for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's not just plotting. I think that it's such an interesting book. From the beginning, you're just, I mean, I'm in. It's awesome beginning. And then there is a lot of nuance to it. For the podcast especially, we read a fair amount of stuff that would fall into YA, I think. And I think for this one, there was a lot of definite tropes. You can tell that you love the genre, but I never really knew what was going to happen next. So I don't think it relied on them too heavily. The costume design too, though, I wanted to talk a little bit more about because did you have anything to do with that? Were, were no, there moments I, where you were... Co- I, okay, I, would, yeah. I will <laughs> say like, that no. Sara, like, again, absolute machine, just like came out showed me the character designs like well okay so uh, Sara came to New York and we ended up like again like kind of talking out like we just spent so much time talking and so I think by the time that it actually came time to do pen to paper for both her and myself uh we were so confident in like we know exactly what this is so when Sara did the character passes immediately it was like yep that's it (laughs) pretty much you know and that was yeah so that was honestly I have to say character designs art stuff it's all Sara it was mostly just me being like this is everyone's deal this is everyone's personality. And Sarah was like, mm. all right, I got it, you know? Yeah. Was there something that you learned? I'm assuming more than one thing because it's a fairly lengthy book. Yeah. But was there something that you learned along the way about your own creative process that you were like, oh, game changer. I'm a different creator now. You know, it's funny because Squire is the first book I ever wrote and it's the first long form thing I ever did. So right. it was like a lot of learning on the spot I think that I don't know I think that like I was basically kind of discovering who I was and what my scripting looked like while I was writing Mm. Squire there was not it was weird because I didn't necessarily do an outline but we had spent so much time talking that I knew where we needed to go and I basically realized I think what I realized about my creative process is that I am definitely a pantser I know where I need to be from point to point in a story. But if I try to chart it too closely, I choke. Like that letter writing chapter just came from me being like, I need to get from point A to point B. How do I get there? Oh, yeah. So I think what I learned is that I need to give myself space to kind of just innovate, I suppose, and just like be like, all right, you know, I'm going to throw some spaghetti at the wall. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, And I think another thing that I learned is that I'm... So when I was in my creative writing program in college, I focused on poetry because I hated writing dialogue. And I was like, and I thought that like, I thought that I just couldn't do it. And then I realized in comics that I now write dialogue first. I actually write dialogue first. And then I add panel descriptions after because in my mind, I know what the panels kind of look like. But what I need to hear more than see is I need to hear the conversation. I need to like hear the beats in my head and kind of write them out on the page and then go back, add panel descriptions, move dialogue around if a panel is getting too wordy. But yeah, I basically learned that I actually fucking love dialogue, which I had no idea. (laughs) The dialogue is one of my favorite parts. I love the dialogue between her and the mentor. Tell me the name again. Daruk. Daruk. I love the dialogue between them. And I feel like when... 
he pops in in the story, it's the perfect moment for him because everybody else, we've gotten a good view of every person. And then you could just go, oh, yes, <laughs> this part's awesome. This person knows what they're talking about. So you get to actually kind of learn some stuff. Yeah, no, Daruk, Daruk is super fun. Daruk is like, that is one of my favorite favorite tropes in fantasy is the like big mysterious dude who has like a heart of gold underneath the exterior of not giving a shit about the kid he's caring for just perfect love a bear yeah i love a bear i love a bear i love a a mean one he showed up on in the page and i was like that's a bear there we go that's a bear i love (laughs) that's my favorite character yeah i know something terrible happened to his arm i know it i can't i can't (laughs) I know yeah. it's going to play a you, role. How did you I all know. like that reveal? <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. Wow. My stomach dropped. Yeah? Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> it, was a, it was a tough one. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's the other piece. And, you know, I'm not really sure how to say this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just feel it out. Yeah. Is it feels like there's a lot of body stuff in this book. And, you, Ooh, know, I'm, I, yes. you know, learning about yes. corpus. You know, there's there's disability on the page. Mm-hmm. There's some gender feels on the yeah. page. So we're not looking it in the eyes. We're kind of like looking at it at the corner mm-hmm. of our eye. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, some romantic feels yes. different ways. Like yes. when um, Hassan, when he blushes. At Basin, yeah, and I was like, "Get out of here! Get <laughs> okay. out yeah, yeah. of I think, here!" I think by the time this comes out, I could safely say the book is so long. I did originally want there to be a romance, like a full fledged romance. However, mm-hmm. I wanted to do it justice, and I realized that mm-hmm. there simply was not room in the book, and mm-hmm. so I basically kind of left it at a ships of the night thing because that also like I lo- I love that too you know <laughs> like I oh, totally. I've I've been on fanfiction.net <laughs> <laughs> definitely speaking my language yeah exactly like Same I've been on, listen I've been on, on AO3 all right so like <laughs> like yeah I, writing for me is again like such a personal experience that I I think I cannot help but put any kind of disability gender queer type stuff in my work because like here I am it's who I am right all of those things like being Palestinian being queer being disabled are all part of my identity they're all part of the lens through which I see my world and as a result when I'm writing I am reflecting my world out there I think when I was a kid my favorite thing was when I would read a book as a very lonely teenager or child I felt like I understood something integral about the author through what I was reading, even if it was like a big genre story. Like there was just something about it that I was looking into their world for a moment. And if there was something there I recognized, I knew that I was not the loneliest person in the world. Um, And so as a writer, I think that is my greatest hope, right? That I can provide that experience for someone else. So Mm. as a result, I can only be honest as a creator by reflecting worlds that reflect me. And so I think there's definitely body stuff in Squire. I have trouble with my body all the time. I'm diabetic. The way that I have a relationship with my body is very complicated. It's why I love haunting so much. It's why I love possession stories. There's definitely like queer love stuff. I mean, I've been there. There's definitely gender stuff. Here I am. So yeah, I think that that's that's anything that's at the core of my being. I, I never try to say like I am writing from the perspective of anything other than my very specific 
world. Uh, and I guess that goes back to, I know I'm repeating myself a lot, but I guess that goes back to the whole catharsis thing, right? Like I originally started writing sure. to make the world make sense to me. And I don't think that's changed at all. Hmm. Dang, that's another one. Sorry. No. <laughs> like, okay. I'll have, I'll have a question prepared. And then your last line is always just such a killer that I'm like, oh, dang. Like, Thank you. Yeah, you know how to end something. You are like, yeah. it, every time, we're both like, dang. I, I, I speak in dialogue. It's hot. It's oh, hot. Yeah. I'm into yeah, yeah. it. I'm into it. I'm here for it. I don't want to spoil anything and I don't want to turn it into a when does Squire 2 come out, you know, kind of situation. But my question was, was because it does have kind of an open ending, yeah. I think is something we can say. Yes. Where do you think that it goes from here? Do you have thoughts about that? Is that something you'd like to explore in the future? Yeah, I think that when we came up with Squire, we definitely like we were asked if we wanted to do a sequel and we said no because we were like, listen, when we come up with this, we want it to be a, a story that works as a closed story. We don't want to commit ourselves mm. to continuing, especially because I think that with fantasy is that the bigger you make the world, the more holes in the logic of that world you get, you can, you can fall into. So I think that originally we were like, this is our first thing ever. We want to just do this and do this right um, without over committing ourselves. I definitely have an idea of where, vaguely, where they might go next. Um, and it it definitely kind of follows a line that she says towards the end about looking for the right people. I don't want to say it's a spoiler to say she can't go home. None of them can. So where do you go if you can't go home? Well, you go looking for a new one. So <laughs> I think that that's... Uh, Chills. You just can't... Yeah, <laughs> so, so, you know, oh, I think that that's... found family narrative. Yes, exactly. So, so I think that so that's... so robust, yeah. I would like to revisit Squire and the world of Squire. I, I hope that someday we, we get to do that. I, 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 have, I have hope that that will happen in some form or another. And I will say that I have like a vague, a vague gesture... But similarly to being like, I know where I need to go. I don't want to plan it too hard. That's kind of how I am is that I'm like, I know where they're going, but I'm not going to I'm not going to chart it, you know, line by line just yet. Well, I think it's that discovery piece that for me is like the addictive quality of writing mm -hmm. is like, look what I discovered. Yeah. You know, this this story was here and I but but I like excavated. It, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, which is a pretty cool. A pretty cool experience. Yeah. Squire's really special. Thank you. I'm I, thank you. <laughs> I am really glad that, you know, that it it touched you all, that it resonated with y'all. I think I was saying this before we started recording that like it, it's funny because when you're working on a book that long, it's just such an interior process for so long. It's just you and your co-creator and your editor for years. And at a certain point, you're just like. I wonder if this makes any sense at all. I wonder if this is anything because you've been looking at it so much that it like starts to lose a little bit of meaning. Do you know what I mean? It's just like staring, yeah, yeah, yeah. like staring at a dot on the wall and watching it shift because you're slowly going mad. Like that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. that's writing. <laughs> Isn't it though? Isn't yeah. it though? Every time Does I it? write, I call up the stairs to my partner. Wait, do I know how to write? Yeah, no. Can you remind me? <laughs> yeah, I, I do that. Yeah, I do that to my partner too. I'm just like, I, I like set them stuff. And They're I'm like, just like, yes, is this here's 14 articles you wrote. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. I can't. Yeah, they're, I, they're I definitely bear. just got finished 
finishing something that was kind of a long project. And by the end of it, I still haven't turned it over to anybody because I it doesn't make sense to me. Like yeah. I finished it and I'm like, I just stared at that too long. Give me a second. I'll go ahead and reread it yeah. here in a little yeah, while. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I've just, I'm working on something like that too right now. That's like very just similar. been... It's been a really long process because uh, it kind of got stopped. Like my progress and it got stopped during the pandemic. And now I'm trying to pick it back up. And I'm like, just wee music in my head. You know, like, do, 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 do. Hey, if that's the first step, that's the first step, right? You know, whatever gets you there. Yeah. I wanted to ask, am I making this up or you're going to be in an issue of X-Force, right? I, I'm doing uh, the X-Force annual this year, which is also coming out March 30. So like literally like right before this comes out. Okay. Uh, that's awesome. Thank that's you. That's incredible. Is it part, because I have been keeping up on the Krakoans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been keeping up with the Krakoans. And... <laughs> Write that comic. Yeah, no, for sure. I everybody wants I, it. Um, listen, I can't write keeping up with the Krakoans, <laughs> but I desperately want to write Succession with the Al Ghul family. Oh my god, I yep. want it so bad. Could you, I want it so yep. bad. <laughs> Isn't that what happened? Because they had um, what was it that Deathstroke series? Yes, and I was Shadow. like, I hate this. I was like, I hate this guy so much. He's the worst. And then I just read Christopher Priest writing him and was like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to not like him. It makes sense now. (laughs) (laughs) My God. Yeah. What is going on with this annual? Because is this something, is it a comic book you had a lot of experience with? Have you been keeping up with the Krakoa era? Not even a little bit. It's funny because I... Like I'm, I'm a big comic fan of so many characters, but the X Men is a is something of a black hole. Um, I li- mm. not, not a full black hole because I obviously grew up with the animated series and I watched all the movies, sure. every single one of them. And I, man, like those first three, we're such apologists for those masterpieces. I like, I like them all. Masterpieces, I think the bad ones are good. <laughs> I think like. I love that Halle Berry is playing a storm yeah. who just like is just trying to get her bag. You know, yeah. she's like, "Pay me, I got places to be." Yeah. I'm like, nothing but respect. Toad getting struck by lightning, hilarious. <laughs> love it. No, no. Like I'm so like I listen. Just Surrey and McKellen and Sir Patrick Stewart, unmatched, unmatched. Oh, like their energy, exceptional. Like I'm so no, I'm a huge apologist for those first three movies. They had to. Okay, I'm making this up, but I'm like, they had to cast you know, handsome young actors just to watch that chemistry play out in a way that was fresh. Yeah. Because whenever you watch those old, the later in the series, they're boyfriends. There's no way they're not. And it just makes it make more sense because you're like, well, here they're exes. And in the first movies, they're exes and they're mad about it. I want to say there was a show, like a British TV show where that Surian McKellen was in he was like a gay guy who's been dating his boyfriend for like 20 years. And they're just so all the only way they can communicate now is just by being desperately catty to each other. I have no idea what this show is called. I watched it when I was like a teenager, but that's basically the <laughs> same. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say it's basically just, just X-Men. <laughs> it was actually their first like attempt at the movie. Yeah, it was, it was the prequel, the original prequel. Um, oh my god yeah no so so the thing is like i like it's funny because i love the x-men but i had not read the comics so when they reached out i was like so like you're gonna have to catch me up 
basically I was like, oh, this is this is all great. I, I kind of uh, like I love like I came up with something I totally love. I think it's totally bonkers. Which is perfect. My, yeah, but my so I just kind of went full bonkers and my big caveat was like, I'm putting Emma Frost in this. I love her. Yeah. Emma Frost is in this. I need her to be. We there. love Emma Frost. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, like who if I love Talia cool, I love Emma Frost. Right? <laughs> I'm like, please. <laughs> oh my God, Nadia loves mean women <laughs> with yeah, beautiful Yeah, Right. Fashion. I'm like step on me. Yeah, full on, right? So like, yeah, I'm like, Emma like Frost, <laughs> please insult me in a way that I'll never recover from. <laughs> yeah. So so I got to to write Emma Frost, which was super fun. So yes, the the X Force annual Yay! is uh, buck wild. Um, it was it's very different than anything I had worked on before, and it really kind of stretched my abilities as a writer to kind of write in genres I didn't ever think I was going to write in. But you know what? Like after doing that, I was like, you know what? I'm glad I did it. In fact, might want to do more spy stuff actually someday. Oh, fun! Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, you're working your way through, like, the the, the bad bitches of Marvel. Uh, that basically is the goal, right? Is that I'm just like, yeah. I think that uh, now that Elektra's Daredevil, that's the next goal, right? Is, like, being like, yeah. well, all right, give me mean women. Give them to me. I'll write them. <laughs> the meaner, the better. I'm writing something um, where Talia yeah. says something, and that's this is fine for me to say, I think. I'm just writing something where Talia says something so mean to Dick Grayson <laughs> that I think about it. <laughs> Even when I'm not writing, <laughs> she just said something so fucked up to him. And I'm the one who wrote it, and I still think about it. I'm just like, damn, bitch. You didn't, you didn't, have, bitch. You didn't have to do that to <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you what it is when that. we stop recording, actually. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Ha ha Inside screen. Yeah. I love it. For a very big change of pace, I would love to hear a little bit more about your interview project where you spoke to a number of Palestinian folks. And I believe it's called No Olive Branch for Me. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So basically, I had done this short comic for a charity anthology with uh, Natasha Alterici, who did an incredible job. And essentially, we love her, had her on the pod. Yes, she's she's incredible. And she was, oh my God, she put so much care in this. She even um, specifically used tones in of the Palestinian flag as the only colors in the book, which was so brilliant that I, I was just like, oh, wow. Thrown by like, what a amazing decision and like care that was put into that. So it was, it was amazing to work with her. And then, you know, we did this short comic that was just about kind of, you know, my my family um, and kind of the legacy, because I think that's something that a lot of Palestinians maybe struggle with a little bit is the uh, the feeling of like, you know, what's your family history and what what do you feel is, I guess, your your legacy as as a person of the Palestinian diaspora? Because I think that the question of Palestine can weigh so heavily on your identity and that it it kind of seeps into, you know, your creative work. So I, I knew a lot of really amazing Palestinians and a few of the people that I talked to, I actually did not know before interviewing them, but but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Basically, I did this anthology and uh, I had the story and then I kind of decided that I actually wanted to print the story, but I wanted to do something more 
And instead of doing another comic, I was like, you know what, maybe instead what I can do is I can give a spotlight for other Palestinian creators to talk about their own family legacies and their own kind of relationship to Palestinian identity and the concept of representation and revolution, you know, because I think that that's so heavy. It can be really hard as a Palestinian to be abroad and see what's happening and feel completely powerless. And I think that, you know, my my creative work is is a way that I can feel like I'm doing something. I mean, something that was really uh, healing for me was getting to guest edit FIA Literary Magazine's Palestine Special Issue and, you know, being able to bring Palestinian voices to the forefront and to get them exposure, get them professionally published, you know, get to meet new Palestinian people. It was just incredible and healing because I I always want to be the person who sends the elevator back down. And so in No Olive Branch for me, I guess that was kind of my first time doing that, kind of thinking like, no, I I should make this more of a community project than just my lens. And so that was kind of it. I just started reaching out to people and reaching out to people who knew people and trying to get as many perspectives as I could. Um, I'm I'm really proud of that project. It's for free on my website, uh, NadiaShamas.com, for anybody who wants to, to find it. And, you know, actually, this will be a good time to say that I'm working on putting together something of a a mentorship program with uh, my friend Paloma Hernandez, who is an incredible agent. And we are trying to develop a mentorship program to uh, help anyone of uh, Swana descent who can apply, put together a professional pitch to be published. So... Now that I... That's so cool. Thank you. I, it's very hard to ever feel like you quote unquote made it in comics. But now that I recognize that like, hey, I've had some time in the industry. I've managed to get professionally published. I'm putting work out. I want to now kind of go back and make sure that there could be more people who are doing the same thing because unfortunately this industry operates by fucking Braveheart rules. There can only be one in terms of representation. And I don't want that. That makes for bad stories. It makes for a bad industry. So I want to help other people, you know, kind of get their foot in and start making fantastic work, especially, you know, BIPOC and marginalized people in this industry can often feel hyper competitive because the industry creates such a hostile mm-hmm. environment mm-hmm. and we end up picking each other apart rather than picking apart the systems that are Ooh. making us like this and so i i want to make sure above all that i never do that and i am not facilitating that so you know, no olive branch for me was probably the beginning of my mindset that made me go, no, I cannot lose sight of community. I did not have community growing up. I want it. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Again, geez, geez, you're just knocking my socks off Thank over you. and over. We think Faya is like the yes, coolest. no, they 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 are they are they are the absolutely the fucking future speculative fiction. I think I cannot believe that they do not get way more support and representation and fucking flowers for everything they do. They deserve all the money. They deserve all the respect. Agreed. You know, it does seem like there are some some ways that they are starting to mm-hmm. get a little bit of that. So I hope it just, no, I hope it snowballs. Yeah, I hope they, they explode, you know, love fire. Yeah. 
And then I don't know if you know, but we also have a queer speculative anthology we publish called Decoded Pride, and that comes out every June. It's amazing. And um, yeah, it's it's really cool. So, you know, what I was thinking about is like, it's so neat being in that editorial position yeah. and getting to help craft people. And I would just love to hear about your experience at FIA doing that editorial work. And maybe it also connects to this mentorship you're working on. When you do that work, what is it that you would want, like, other writers, and, and particularly Palestinian writers, to to know and think about as they go into submissions, as they're writing their creative work? I'm trying to figure out how to, how to answer. Um, and I'm, like, realizing that the answer I want to give is not necessarily a direct one. But I think that something that I experienced as a Palestinian was a lot of paranoia and a lot of... Like, I kept thinking that I was going to ruin my career, but obviously I couldn't stay silent about what's happening in Palestine. But at the same time, I kept thinking, like, I don't know which doors are going to be shut to me that I'm shutting forever simply by being myself. But to be completely honest, to bring it back to Squire, we did receive pushback. Um, There was questioning of me and my intentions in the Squire pitch because I'm Palestinian. There were publishers who were anxious to work with me because they felt that working with me might be seen as making a statement on the conflict. And what I realized pretty quickly was that my identity was going to be politicized and scrutinized no matter what, no matter how palatable I wanted to be. And so my advice for any Palestinian is to be fearless because they're going to do it anyway, you know? Oh, you gave me chills again. <laughs> like that's don't be sorry. That's not a, I'm having a transformational yeah, experience no, over here. It's yeah, I know that that's not necessarily the answer to your question, but I guess what I'm saying is that like I think it's a great yeah, answer. Yeah, is that it's it's sort of like another th- reason that I want to kind of be part of a community of Palestinian writers and you know, and Swana writers in general. The reason that I think that community is so important is because you want someone to stand with you when those moments happen, right? You want to feel like you've got your people if you're really scared of what's happening. I mean, I'm very uh, lucky and blessed to kind of, I mean, if there are doors that close to me, I did not hear about them. That's all. So I'm like, all good, you know? Yeah. And I think maybe we said this off the air. Maybe it was on the episode. I don't remember. But you know, it comes back to that mentality of like, fuck them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to be, I would guess in, in your case, like for me, I think about it, like, I don't want to hang out with people who are trans folks. Yeah, like, I don't course. care what their access is. Yeah. Like, fuck them. Yeah, em. basically. Because like, my life isn't worth it, right? Yeah. Like, I have too much good to do in this world. I can't get bogged down in that. Yeah. So um, I, I think, was, I think. That was incredible. The more I think about what other people might think about my work, the less I'm able to work. Um, I get, I get too scared. Oof. I get too in my head. And I think, again, I'm never going to try to say that I am representing anyone's view. I am writing my world, and that's all. All I can do is I can hope that there's something about my world that you recognize, you feel connected to, or that reveals or illuminates something about your own world that you didn't notice before. That's all I can hope for from my readers. But, you know, I... I'm definitely not trying to figurehead here. Much like Isa, I right. am not trying to figurehead here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you do not speak for the truth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's how Sarah and I always talk about it. We're like, listen, yeah. I cannot speak for everyone who reads comics or is trans. Basically, or yeah. Is a lesbian, whatever, you know. 
And you know what? Isn't it interesting that like George R. R. Martin with England, no one asks white men to speak no, for No, not at men. all. They still do speak for all people because, because we can, you know, that's a their thing. Because whiteness <laughs> is considered the default. It's considered the uh-huh. neutral setting, and it just uh-huh. isn't. And I think that once we can finally, and you can tell, by the way, when, like, uh, you know, white guys are just writing, like, white characters in diversity suits— like, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you can yes. always feel it, right? There is always something, like, the, the suits are hollow. It's animatronic. You look in the eyes, there's no spark. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, uh, you can always tell. It just makes for bad stories, guys. You should hire us because you're doing a bad job. <laughs> Not for any, like, uh, like just beyond the, like, uh, moral and social and financial reasons. You're just, you're not going to. Right. Yeah. It's also just bad writing. It's just writing. bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah and I are always talking about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I usually ask what you have coming up. We kind of just got a window into what you have coming up. But is there anything else that's around the corner? Is there something that you would like yeah. to work on that you haven't had oh the chance God. to Oh, my God. Okay. So, you know, Squire has come out. I hope you all pick it up. Later this year, I've got Where Black Stars Rise, which is an eldritch horror retelling of The King in Yellow and set in a modern-day Brooklyn. It follows uh, Dr. Amal Roberdine who is a Lebanese immigrant and therapist in training who gets her first patient who begins to experience these night terrors that seem all too real. And as a result of her miscommunication, I suppose her inexperience, patient goes missing. And that search will lead her into Carcosa. Um, So that, <laughs> yeah, that's the reaction that I want. That was a great elevator pitch. That was a great elevator pitch. That's the reaction pitch. I want. So if you are interested in uh, horror based around queerness, around mental health, around just general Arab shit, uh, I think you should pick it up. You'll pr- And again, it was co-created with the incredible Marie Enger, who similarly to Sarah, we spent many hours on the phone coming up with everything. I couldn't have come up with any of this without Marie. This year, I've also got that X-Force annual, number one, which is coming out on March 30th, which I guess that just came out, actually. In the month of April, I am co-writing a three-issue arc of Detective Comics with Mariko Tamaki. Oh, <gasps> yes. Awesome. And it's so fun because we, get, we got to go full noir. We got to go full, like, you know, yes. brooding. Uh, <laughs> and it's the Riddler who is the main villain of that arc. And I will say that the Riddler is one of my favorite Batman villains, hands down, because I think, man, I think his dynamic with Batman is even more interesting to me than the Joker. Because like, it is there's something so personal about someone making a trap or a riddle that is just for you to decipher. The Riddler is a genius who wants to find his match. He wants to play a game because it is the only way that he feels seen. He has never felt seen before, but Batman, the world's greatest detective, might be the one to finally understand him. And as he invites every riddle as an invitation to the inside of Riddler's mind, that is my personal opinion on why I love the Riddler so much. It's like very intimate. Mm -hmm. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, so Mariko is is obviously a legend. And honestly, and yeah. it's so it was so surreal to co-write with her because uh, when I first started writing Squire and I was stuck on the very first chapter, I went and reread this one summer, which completely broke my writer's mm-hmm. block. And uh, like I'm like, wow, I learned how to write basically off of looking at your stuff. So that's crazy. That is truly yeah. bonkers. I was thinking, too, that we should mention, just in general, Tamaki's run on Detective Comics has been ridiculously good. It's, so people should yes. pick up the yeah, whole no, thing. She, she's, she's so good at this. And it's it's been super fun to kind of get to play in that space with her and really just, like, go for the, the like, oh, my God, I wish I could do jazz music with my mouth. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I wish I could, like, do an imitation of a saxophone. <laughs> yeah exactly 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 what's the theme for the long goodbye again i'll start singing it <laughs> oh my god but yeah no so that's <laughs> happening in april and always keep an eye out because i'm always doing little things here or there in marvel and dc and honestly in my own head i'm like trying to remember what's been announced and what hasn't <laughs> I'm like, yeah. but uh so just definitely expect me to be doing more in the batman space so uh talia fans just keep an eye out i'm doing a few things here and there and hopefully you know i get to keep writing my girl for a long time I have another uh, YA graphic novel that's been announced, but has no release date called Everyone's White on the Internet. Maybe mm. I'll be able to talk about that more next time I come on the podcast. You mean next yeah. week? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, I'm the new, yeah, I'm the new co-host and I'll, yeah, see, you're and I'll see you guys later. <laughs> like, yeah. So, God, that's what I think I can talk about right now. I mean, not to brag, but I work a lot. <laughs> my partner hates not it the, not the flex it always feels like you know yeah. you're like I work yeah. a lot it's like everyone's like we noticed yeah my partner's like can you please sleep and I'm like no I can't yeah no I'm a literal insomniac actually oh wow yeah okay yeah. so yeah sleep is uh, an elusive demon same much like the elusive <laughs> yeah. demon at like, the foot of my bed that inspired where black stars rise Oh man, exactly. when you talked about that cracked door, I was like, I don't even know. No, I mean, actually, I like the, the night terrors in that book are inspired by my actual night terrors. I was, what, oh, what my. I, oh my God, we have to talk about this next time. Next time on Bitches on Comics, um, <laughs> <laughs> you get to hear all about my night terrors when I was a teenager. All right, Nadia, close the episode. Yeah. You got it. We'll just, you know what? I'm going to sign off. You got it from here. Yeah. Well, Nadia, this has been just delightful. You are hysterical. You are. So insightful. You can drop a soundbite like nobody's business. And and obviously beyond style. There's a ton of substance here. You are so interesting and and Squire is so so beautiful for you know the 30th time and unique. I, I really was touched and and moved and I'm going to go read it again, like probably right after we get off this thank call. Cause so I just, much. I need to go back there. You yeah. know, I'm already sad. I miss them. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It, it means the world. Thank you for taking a trek in my, in my little world. <laughs> into your, attic. yeah. Into my little attic and um, my scribbles. <laughs> perfect. Absolutely. Perfect. Sarah, as always, you are a delight. Kate, thank you for Hi. making us sound thank you, Kate. insightful. We are very grateful yeah. for you. 
Listeners, thank you for being here with us. It is always a joy to share beautiful art and awesome guests with you. So thanks for tuning in again. And patrons, you are the tits. You keep us afloat just like Kate Winslet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at Bitches on Comics and on Instagram at at Bitches on Comics. Our website is, brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my two wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I'm hoping to open up the conversation about balancing careers and family. The one thing I constantly hear successful people say, without fail, is that they wish they'd spent more time with their kids. That's time no one can get back. So I decided to create Business Dad, to engage in the conversation about how we're spending our time now, providing a forum for successful dads to share their joys and challenges of being a working parent. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. And while this podcast will talk about business and will definitely be featuring dads, I think everyone can learn something from these incredible conversations as we unpack the expectations we all have about careers, relationships, and ourselves. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.